Hello, everybody, and welcome to In-Depth, presented by the San Antonio Express News. My name is Luis Vasquez, and I'll be your host as we bring in journalists to give us an inside perspective into the stories they bring to the Express News each week. Today, I'm joined by news correspondent Jason Book to talk about the cross-border and money laundering scandal in South Texas. Welcome to the show, Jason. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I was uh, just reading over your uh, your reporting, and uh, there's a lot. Is there any way you can give me a quick, just a brief overview of, of, of your reporting? So this is part of a really kind of sprawling money laundering investigation that's being done in South Texas, or was being done in South Texas. It seems to have pretty much wrapped up. Um, this is kind of the tail end of it. But the, the overarching allegations are that a number of state and municipal level officials in Mexico um, embezzled hundreds of millions of dollars from taxpayers and then brought the money to Texas where they laundered it through bank accounts, real estate, um, cars, planes, the, sort of a wide range of, of, uh, of assets uh, that the federal government has been seizing over the last almost 10 years now. And so the so the two key kind of players here are Juan Jorge Torres Lopez and Hector Javier Villarreal Hernandez. What can you tell me about those two gentlemen? So um, they were both at various points the finance secretary for the government of Coahuila, which is the Mexican state that borders Texas, um, pretty much from just west of Laredo to the middle of the Big Bend. And um, Torres succeeded Villarreal as, um, or, or preceded Villarreal, excuse me, as finance secretary. And then later, after he left the state government, Torres came back as the interim governor for most of 2011. Um, and so Villarreal is somebody who's expressed news, has written about quite a bit because he had um, a fairly large um, business in footprint in, in San Antonio, in the San Antonio area, as well as in Brownsville. He used money stolen from the state, and then he said um, on Friday that he'd also solicited from investors in Mexico to, uh, to purchase a, a lot of properties, so a lot of commercial properties in Brownsville and along San Antonio's north side, the federal government seized from him a pharmacy, um, a strip center off right off 281, and then, um, and, uh, like a, um, uh, storage unit, like a tower, um, you know, not, not an individual storage unit, but like a building where you would go in as a member of the public and rent individual storage units. This whole story reads like some sort of Netflix crime special. And, uh, I'm curious how, how do you report on something like this? Do you are you just like pouring over court documents and writing the story? Like, how do you um, how do you gather yourself to write and report on this? Well, it's sort of a mix. There's a lot in the court documents, but they're spread out over multiple cases, which include civil asset forfeiture cases where the federal government, or in this case, in one case, the Bear County District Attorney's Office went to court and instead of charging someone with a crime actually filed a civil lawsuit and said, we believe, for the, what the district attorney office did, was we believe these bank accounts are, um, are filled with $6.5 million that are the proceeds of a crime. And so we're going to prove in court that and take the money without ever actually having to bring 
uh, a criminal charge. But there's also some criminal cases, such as this case with, with Torres. So it, it is, there's a lot of time with the documents. Then you have to go out and try to talk to the people involved, talk to experts. You want to actually see the properties, see what's happening with the properties. Are they being rented? Are they being used? Who are the tenants? Um, there, there ends up being, once you've sort of figured out, once you've used the court records to get a sense of the ecosystem, then you're on, you know, you're on the, the, the pavement trying to, trying to fill in the gaps. Um, this particular hearing was important because thus far only one of the defendants in any of these cases has gone to trial. And so we've had very little public testimony. It's been really limited to what the government has put in their court filings, the defendants have put in their court filings to get any sense of, of the details of this. And so Friday's hearing was important because the Ariel, um, who's in, you know, has been cooperating with the government for many years now. And another gentleman named, um, Luis Carlos Castillo Cervantes, who lives in Mission and is a, um, a very, he has a, a paving company in Mexico. He owns a bunch of paving equipment in Mexico. Um, and he, he's admitted to paying bribes to officials across the country in exchange for, uh, for contracts. And he, as he put it on Friday, that he was actually getting, um, extorted and forced to pay kickbacks for contracts. But we've had very little, we, the general public and the media have had very little opportunity to see, to hear directly from these folks. They won't talk to me. They won't give me interviews. I'm, I've, I've asked for them. Um, but they will, they, they were forced to testify in court. And so we got, um, got, got a, a picture of, of how this functioned. You mentioned, um, in the story itself that federal sentencing hearings are usually brief affairs. Um, wh why, why was this one different exactly? Was it just how complex the, um, the scheme was or uh, the amount of testimony that was given? What, what was different? The, so what, what was different was they were having the, the defense and the prosecution were having a fight about, I think there were sort of three main issues here. Um, when, when someone's sentenced in federal court, it's, it's this very, there's this very complex calculation that's done to figure out that there, there's like this chart with like sentencing guideline scores and there are all these factors that these employees of the, the, the U.S., they're called the U.S. Probation Department, but most of what they do is figure out these sentencing guidelines. That's all done behind closed doors in these sealed reports and then memos and generally there's some, everybody's kind of come to an agreement um, ahead of time. Uh, and we don't get to see this fight play out in, in public. In this case, there was no agreement. Um, and so they, there was a, the prosecution and the defense were having a fight about the amount of money that Mr. Torres was admitting to having laundered, um, whether or not he was a uh, essentially a manager or an organizer of the money laundering scheme and whether or not it was a complex scheme. And all these things can impact his sentencing. And it's, some of it sounds pretty um, um, picky. But in reality, uh, every one of those can affect his sentence. So they were basically calling, the prosecution was calling witnesses to convince the judge that he had laundered more than $700,000 seemed to be the point that everybody could 
agree on. But the prosecution was saying, no, we took this, I think it's nearly $3 million bank account in Bermuda from him, so he needs to take responsibility for that. The defense's position was, you guys took that, but that money was clean. It was a gift from his dad, I think they said. Um, the And then, so the, the total amount where they were having a big fight over, but also his role in the conspiracy, whether he was a major player in the conspiracy or not. And that's where a lot of the really um, revealing testimony came in. Um, we started to see, they just had, Biriel really talked about how they took money, how they made money by overbilling flight hours, he testified, um, uh, inflating contracts, and then how they justified the expenses to the Texas banks that they were laundering the money in, which was that they claimed to be um, to be uh, brokers on airplane sales and had generated these false invoices to show the bankers to justify the, the, the amount of money that they were bringing into the state. This is, I mean, it's all really fascinating. And how long have you been covering this story? Did you, are you picking this up at the tail end or have you been covering this for a while? Yeah. So, um, I, I'm in for, I'm a freelance reporter now, but I was on staff at the Express News for, for many years. And Guillermo Contreras and I started writing about money laundering back in 2012. We, uh, we're covering some, there, there were some traffic, or some, some people from Guadalajara, some businessmen from Guadalajara, Mexico, were uh, investing in San Antonio with money from drug traffickers. Those were the allegations in court. And they had, had actually purchased um, the old 90s restaurant up on San Pedro, which they turned into an Italian food place, which is now, the government sold it, and now it's, I think, uh, Rosario's owns it. So it's totally disconnected from them now because the government seized it and sold it. Um, and so the, the new owners are the, the owners of Rosarias. I, I know that place. It was right across the street from Diversions and the gyms. and Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Which is funny because it's right down, that's like right down the street from the DEA offices in San Antonio. So they had, they were doing some real estate deals in San Antonio in the Dominion too, I think. And then they also, I mean, this was really interesting. I think Esquire came in and did a story about it after we wrote about it. Um, but they they had um, they had purchased the rights to a prequel to um, um, the Passion of the Christ, and so and so and, and, and one of the things that's interesting about these cases is there's usually legitimate businessmen involved who may or may not know that they're in business with narcos or in this case with with corrupt public, in these other cases with corrupt public officials. So there was stuff coming out in like, you know, business disputes between the different parties and stuff that we were able to use then. And then after that, that, that those cases were like 2011. We did sort of a big takeout on them in 2012. And then these, these, um, were, they're called kleptocracy cases. You know, these public officials stealing money and then bringing it to the States and laundering it. Then those cases began. And so, so been covering this on and off for, for almost a decade now. That's incredible. And the last thing I kind of really want to talk about before I let you go is, um, well, how long have you been freelancing now? Um, like three years. Well, how did your job um, become affected during the pandemic? And how is it changing? Is it, is it, is it stabilizing now? Is everything coming back to normal, you think? Or what's been irreversibly changed for you? 
you know, I, I, so I moved during the pandemic. The reason I started freelancing was I left the Express News and uh, moved to Seattle and was freelancing there. And then we moved back to Texas and now I'm in Austin. Um, I, 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 I'm so new to it. it. It's still such, freelancing is still such a weird, different thing for me. It, it's hard to say. Um, not being able to go out and do reporting, but I think that's just sort of across the board. But that was really difficult. This was the first time I'd been in court since the pandemic started. Um, and, and that was a very strange experience to, to actually go into a courtroom, you know, masked up for four hours of testimony or whatever, um, taking handwritten notes, which I hadn't had to do in forever. Um, I don't know how much the, the, the pandemic has has um, has changed it because I, I just didn't have that much experience, you know, a year, almost two years of experience prior. Um, it, it was still fairly fairly new to me. I will say that that the courtroom was was an, an interesting experience. I had not been in a South Texas courtroom in um, in three years since I left uh, San Antonio, and so I was immediately struck in that as somebody who very much likes cowboy boots and has an embarrassing cowboy boot collection. Um, the, the amount of, uh, of reptile skin on display on the, in the footwear of, uh, of the different folks who are in the courtroom on Friday. And the thing that, that was most surprising to me was, uh, actually, I think I saw some alligator skin loafers, which, you know, the, the, the alligator, the Cayman skin boots are, aren't that unusual, but the loafers were, were quite a sight. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about your reporting and stuff. It was really fascinating. I was, uh, like I said, it, it read like, um, like just some Netflix special that's going to come out soon. <laughs> thanks. Uh, but again, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope to do this again soon. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. This was fun.